Well, good morning. It's my privilege to welcome you to Central today, where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus. This Advent season, as we anticipate the coming of the King, we've been celebrating and studying in the Bible various gifts that God gives us in Jesus. And today, we're going to examine Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. One of the most beautiful passages in the entire New Testament, I believe, and it's thought to have been an early hymn of the early church, highlighting the humility of Jesus. Here's what I hope that we can grasp together this morning. Humility produces joy. Humility within the church produces a joy in the church, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. Paul's ministry in Philippi was hard, in part because he wrote this letter to the Philippians from jail and faced a potential death sentence. Further, the church was troubled. People inside the church were very suspicious of outsiders, and those inside the church also struggled to trust one another. They accused one another. It was a hard ministry. And yet something sparked Paul to write about joy in this letter. What was it? It was humility. It was when he saw the same humility in the people of God that was mirrored in Jesus himself. When Paul saw it, he was filled up with praise. He was filled with joy. He saw Jesus alive and at work in the hardship, producing humility and giving joy. You see, joy is not tied to a change in our circumstances, but rather with glimpses of God at work, seeing Jesus alive and among his people. That's what sparks joy. He can do that for you too. When we see the humility of Jesus represented among the body of Christ, then Ruth begins to take joy deeper into our weary souls. Let's pray as we turn our hearts to God's word. Father, we ask that you would send the Spirit to open our eyes that we might behold Jesus. We pray that you would bless us with that vision, with that sense of his love for us, for which he came and gave himself. Lord, help us to see it, help us to embrace it and believe it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on, only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
This is God's good news of great joy. Glory to God in the highest. Humility was not in style in Jesus' day. Ancient Greeks valued strength and stability that was rooted in fear. They reasoned like this, respect is the glue that holds society together. And the way to command respect is through fear. Being strong enough to command fear, that's how you build a solid and stable society through fear. It's not all that different from some of the things we hear in our world today, is it? In fact, in Greek literature outside the New Testament, the word used here for humility always had a derogatory sense. It was never, not a single time, used positively. In fact, in the virtue lists that were put together by ancient Greek ethicists like Aristotle and Plato, humility never appeared on a list of virtues, not once did it ever appear on the list of virtues. Why? Because the word is defined as gentle and modest and deferential. And they consider that to be the posture of a slave. Who wants to behave as a slave and call it virtue, they thought. But that same word group, that same word that describes gentle and modest and deferential, that describes a slave's posture, that same word is used 270 times in the New Testament, almost every single time positively. Now, let's make sure that you, you're grasping what's happening here. In the literature of the day, in Greek world, humility was always negative. It was always considered a derogatory thing. But in the Bible, humility is virtually every time it's called something positive. See, the way of discipleship, we might say, is upside down from that of the natural world. It's very different from how we would live in our own flesh. We could say that the world of the Christian faith, as I've said before, the way up is down. The way up to glory is down in humility, gentle modest and deferential. It's counterintuitive with how we think the world works, right? And another thing is counterintuitive. That same humility, that gentleness and modesty and a deferential life brings joy. It's a road to joy among the people of God. That's how Paul puts it in verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being bound together, not in strength, not in fear, but in humility brings and produces joy among the people of God. Humility is what God by the Spirit produces in us, and it is a driver for joy in community, and it truly only comes from one place. We see it pictured through God swaddled in a manger. We see it in God hanging upon a cross, stripped and naked and abandoned for our sakes. Humility is best seen in Jesus and the truth is that we just can't say, I'm going to do that more. I'm going to be filled with humility. I'm going to focus on my humility so that I grow it so much. You know, you can't do that. Because the moment you begin to focus on humility, you damage it. It's, humility is like a shadow. If you shine a light on a shadow, what happens? The shadow disappears, doesn't it? It's the same with humility. If I'm conscious of all my humility, it begins to chase it away. In fact, being conscious and focusing on all my humility might spur me toward pride in all of my humility. 
But if we want humility to be built within us, if we want to be more like Jesus in that way, then Jesus has to capture our imaginations. Jesus has to capture our hearts more than my agenda, my life, my way captures my agenda and imagination and heart. We have to look away from ourselves to Jesus. But what particularly about Jesus captures our imaginations and our hearts here? Three things for us in this text this morning. The first one is this, Jesus' life of being others-centered. Jesus used his position, he used his authority in a sense of to give rather than to get. He was others-centered. Look at verse 5. Though, or we could translate it because, he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The nature of Christ in God is that it's a nature of giving rather than getting. That's very different from how ancient kings would view their position. They considered it all a means of privilege, but Jesus saw his nature as uniquely fitting him for the posture of service in that act of redemption. Instead of excusing him from the hard work of of taking on flesh and entering into this broken world and that work that we studied last week, that work of, of redemption, of giving himself so that we would be set free from our sin, Jesus' nature as God was the very thing that fit him for that work. His glory wasn't through self-advancement, but rather it uniquely qualified him to give his life away for sinners. It's a fuller manifestation of the, the nature of God, the King, who enters this world to become our servant. His life defines other-centeredness, and it's beautiful. And when we see it among the people of God, it brings us joy. I recently read a story about a reporter who interviewed a very successful job placement counselor. And the story was about what's your secret? What's the, uh, what's the secret of how you evaluate people and find out what they're really like so you can put them in exactly the right job for them? And this is what that job placement counselor said. He said, if you wanna know what a person is like, don't give him responsibilities, give him privileges. You give him responsibilities and most everyone will fulfill responsibilities if you intimidate them enough or you pay them enough. But if you want to find the real character of a person, give him a privilege. A person with character and real selflessness and real leadership will use his privileges to help others and to build the organization. A lesser man will use his privileges only to promote himself. It's true. And how do we see Jesus spent his life in the flesh? Paul said here he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He did it on his own. He chose chose this humiliation. He chose to empty himself and manifest this nature of God in the form of a slave, one who has no rights. He didn't empty himself by becoming any less God than while he was in heaven, but rather he took onto himself a human nature and put himself in subject to the limitations of a human nature and a human body. Think about that. The one through whom the entire universe was created, born a helpless baby into poverty, as if he were a servant, humble, gentle, modest, and deferential. That explains so much of the ministry of Jesus. 
living as a servant to the people around him, willing to spend himself for the good of other people. That life of Christ that we are called into conformity unto is one of being others-centered in our lives too. How do we view the glory of our lives? How do you consider your skills and privileges and position, your legacy? Is all of that me-centered? Centered on advancing myself and advancing what I want? Or are all of those things Jesus-centered and others-centered? Do you look at your life and think, what do I have that I can give? How am I uniquely positioned to serve? Or rather, do you look at your life and say, how can people serve me? The life of a disciple looks to pour self out, to give in order that other people might be blessed. That's the path of the Christian life, following the Lord Jesus. Whether we're talking about in our families or in our workplace or in our neighborhoods with our friendships, we have to ask the question, what do I have to give? But remember, Jesus, who gave himself, didn't give because he got such a good deal in us. (laughs) We're sinners. We are sinners who perpetually lie to him, We steal glory for him by taking credit of things that he's done. Sometimes we're ashamed to admit that we even know him. We would rather serve our own comforts rather than his glory and and his purpose. Jesus didn't come to be a servant of deserving people. But he came to be a servant of sinners. People who are hard to love to be a servant of the dishonorable like me and like you. And yet he loved. He gave himself so that we by his power in us can become like him, not a servant of the deserving around us, but a servant of people in need. And so when that posture shows up among a people, people who are willing to look for needs and say, how can I meet those needs? When that kind of humility and other-centeredness shows up among a community, we see Jesus alive there and it brings us joy. Isn't it a beautiful life when you see someone lay down some advantage or some blessing in order to pour out love on another person? It spurs joy among the people of God. What else did we see in the life of Jesus here? The second thing is we find in him a life of grace. Look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He had limited himself by taking on flesh, becoming a a helpless child laid in a manger. And then he gave himself to death, even death as a criminal. Crosses in the Roman world were used for one thing and one thing only, it was to torture and execute. That's it. To torture and execute people who were condemned, that's all they were used for. Was Jesus condemned? Well, Jewish law stipulated that anyone who died on a cross died under the curse of God. It's exactly what Jesus did. He took on himself the condemnation, the curse that's rightfully ours. He received injustice. He received degradation in order to love an undeserving people like us. That was his life of grace, to give the opposite of what we deserve. That's grace. He poured out kindness and love and forgiveness for people like us when we deserve condemnation and cursing. It was that life of grace in Jesus to be treated unjustly, 
that he might love us sinners, the very ones who caused him all the pain. He was condemned for our sin, taking our sentence of condemnation. And again, we're called to that attitude, Paul calls us, to have that same mind among us as the people of God. So we have to ask ourselves some questions. Am I willing to take it on the chin? Am I willing to suffer a little bit in order to love someone else? A life of grace is yes. Am I so tied to my reputation that I have to be right all the time and I'm unwilling to patiently endure with someone else and walking them toward the truth and toward love? A life of grace would say I'm willing even to suffer, even to be counted wrong if I can continue speaking and pointing out the truth in your life. Are we willing to live that way with lives of grace? I read this week an account from Tim Keller about another pastor that he and I know in common. His name is Dick Kaufman. And Keller suggested that Dick Kaufman is the most humble person he's ever met in his life. And I think he might, he might be right about that, at least from my uh, vantage point. Keller wanted to know how that happened. So he decided he, he couldn't go ask Dick Kaufman, so how did you become so amazingly humble? And that's not, if, if he were to try to answer that question, he's lessening his own humility, right? So instead, Keller said he just stepped back and just decided to observe and watch how Dick Kaufman lives his life. One day, Kaufman commented to Keller how much he absolutely hates unfair criticism. He just can't stand it. And I thought, hmm, I can identify with that. I know what that feels like, and it bugs me too. How about you? So Keller decided to ask him a question. Why? Why do you loathe unfair criticism so much? And Dick Kaufman's humility was set on display. He responded this way. He said, I hate unfair criticism so much because unfortunately, there is nothing more important to me than my reputation. And if someone or something threatens that, threatens my reputation, then I, I go to pieces. Anybody else struggle with that? Anybody else have that dynamic in your own heart and life? And then Kaufman added, but, but here's what I've learned as I've meditated on Philippians 2. Kaufman says, I realize that Jesus chose to go to the cross unjustly. Jesus chose to make himself of no reputation for me. And if Jesus' reputation didn't mean so much to him that he was willing to give it up for someone like me, then perhaps I can be willing to give up mine for him. Is there room for that kind of grace in your heart? That kind of grace toward other people in your life? Is there room for treating other people the opposite? Giving them blessing when what they've done, how they behave, might deserve curse. Is there room for life of grace even when you're unfairly criticized? Willing to be hurt by someone in order to walk with them in love. Now, I'm not suggesting that we let people walk over us in abuse. That's, that's not the point at all. The question is, are we willing to allow ourselves to be inconvenienced? Willing to allow ourselves even to hurt if we're pursuing someone else in love. That's the way Jesus lived his life. Paul also says, while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. That kind of humility follows a path uh, as a disciple. That's the, 
the path that we follow. And it's the only the Holy Spirit who can produce it in us as we meditate on and study the Lord Jesus, as we are molded and shaped by the Spirit to be more like that humble Jesus who's captured our hearts and captured our imaginations. As we study Jesus, the Spirit begins to make us more like Jesus. You're willing to walk this road of a disciple of a life of grace. Finally, Jesus exhibited a life of upside-down honor. Where does our culture tell us that honor and glory come from? Where do even our own hearts tell us sometimes? We tend to think that glory and honor comes from achievement, from clawing our way to the top and being exceptional and finding a way to stay on the top. That's where we receive honor and glory. Jesus' honor and glory, Jesus' exaltation in this passage comes for a completely different reason. Jesus is exalted because he climbed down the ladder of honor in order to serve people like us. Get verse 9. It begins with therefore, calling on us. Every time you see it in the Bible where there's a therefore, ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Because it connects ideas. And this is the ideas that it connects. In verses 7 and 8, it speaks of Jesus' humiliation. He took on flesh, took on our limitations. He even went to death of condemnation. He humbled himself. It even appeared like the Messiah had lost. Therefore, Paul says, Jesus was humiliated. Therefore, verse 9, he was called the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means even the devil and his servants will bow their knee to Jesus one day. In verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. One day, Jesus will bring a swift and certain end to all the chaos, all the difficulty, all the pain in this life. And the entire cosmos will realize that the humiliated one is the one who triumphed. The one who was humiliated on the cross has triumphed over all. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. The one who first came in the form of a servant, taking that place of gentle and modest and deferential, the posture of a slave. That one is coming again in power and glory before whom the entire universe will bow. But make sure you grasp the progression. Verses 7 and 8 He humbled himself. He allowed himself to be treated as a slave. Therefore, he was exalted. He allowed himself to suffer death of condemnation. Therefore, he receives glory. It's a life of upside down honor. Our culture says that we are glorious when we achieve. We honor the people who are achievers. But Jesus here is honored for his humility. Being gentle and modest and deferential in how he lived his life. And that's very different from us sometimes. We are prone to think, I'm not going to let anybody treat me like that. I'm not let anyone treat me how Jesus was treated. I'm not going to be anyone's servant. In fact, I've read a few opinion pieces on the blogosphere lately that suggest that in the church, the time for humility and, win- and winsomeness is over. They've suggested that if we want to triumph, if we want to win then we should adopt the tactics of the world. We have to fight like they fight. It's time to fight fire with fire, they've written. Now, it's true. Jesus sometimes brought the fire, but he reserved those harsh comments for religious people. 
but toward the world, the lost world. He didn't do any of that. He humbled himself. He served. He spent time loving the undeserving and the sinful and the broken. So why as the church should we expect as the body of Christ on earth, why should we do anything different than emulate our king? Why would we think that we can serve the cause of Christ, the mission of Christ, by adopting the tactics of the world? By adapting the postures of the world. The Bible never says that meanness leads to repentance. Never. It says just the opposite. God's kindness leads us to repentance. We follow Jesus by advocating for his kingdom in humility, not by loudly denouncing everybody who disagrees with us. Follow after him in kindness and gentleness, not in being harsh toward people who disagree with us, but in humility, serving and loving and sacrificing as Jesus did. We don't have to adopt the tactics of selfish ambitions and insecure grasping to win because Jesus has already won. That's how these ideas are tied together from verses 7 and 8 to verses 9 through 11. Jesus has already won. In tenderness, he won. In humility, he won. In all of that, he was crowned, victorious, triumphant. And he's returning in glory one day. And so while we wait with his strength and his life within us as his people, we follow on that path of Jesus, of humility, of being gentle and modest and deferential, the very definition of how Jesus lived his life. We follow that path of Jesus by returning scorn that comes our way with grace and tenderness. All because we have confidence that Jesus has won Jesus has conquered. So our humble life is a beautiful life in the hands of God because all of the things that we want to come about, all the ways that we want to win, Jesus is already victorious. And so we can afford to live lives of humility today, following after him and his way. Let me close with this. I read another interview this week by an orchestral conductor And he was asked, what is the most difficult position in your orchestra? And his answer was that the most difficult position and the most difficult instrument in the entire orchestra is second violin. He said, first violin's pretty easy. There are plenty of people who can play it and play it exceptionally well, but it is far rarer, he said, to have someone who will play second violin with the same enthusiasm and excellence. Because all the talents and the resources of a second violin are used to highlight the play of the first. The second violin is there to highlight the melody that the first violin plays, he said. Yet without a second violin, there's no harmony. Beauty is diminished without someone occupying that space. Conductor says the hardest place, the hardest position is second violin. Isn't that true among the people of God too? We follow after Jesus as second violin, honoring him, pointing people to Jesus. And we use our gifts, we use our positions, we use our privileges, we use all that we have in order to serve and bless other people. We point other people to the blessings that we found in Christ. We play second violin to other people's needs. And when that's set on display, 
It reveals the life of Jesus among a community. Jesus took the form of a servant. Gentle, modest, deferential, and he triumphed in that humility. He conquered our sin-sick souls with his humble love. And by his spirit, he'll produce that same humble love in a lot of self-interested people like you and me. And when we see it, when we witness a life that's other-centered, that is filled with grace, that is seeking upside-down honor, when we see that alive within us, it's joy. Because Jesus is here. Jesus is alive among his people. And when we see him, it produces joy in our own hearts. Let's praise him for that joy. Father, we are grateful for the evidence that we see you alive in other people's lives and our own hearts too. We are grateful for all the ways that we see people walking in humility at Central. Grateful for the ways that people have poured out their resources for the sake of your mission. People have used their time to serve underserved, to to have an extra conversation with a neighbor, just a moment to share the love of Jesus with their own children serving in humility. We're grateful for the way, Lord, that you have moved people here to spend so much of themselves for others as we pursue your mission together. And Jesus, we ask for more of it. We would ask for more humility, more of the life of Jesus on display in Central Church so that we would be filled with joy and the world around us would see a Jesus alive in this place. We pray that from Central Church, you would bring revival in our community, in our city. We pray that you would bring revival in our nation, revival around the world, Lord. Convert the sinner and comfort us who know you with the beauty of your gospel. Breathe your life into us again that we might praise your name and testify to your humble beauty. Lord, do that work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.